Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Ohio Mysteries. Before we get started, I wanted to thank all of our listeners, our PayPal supporters, and our Patreon supporters. If you want to help the show, head on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com, and you'll see two different places you can donate to keep our show running. Another fantastic way to keep us going is sharing our podcast on social media with friends and family. Without you, we wouldn't be able to keep bringing you these fantastic mysteries. Now, gather around the campfire. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me as always is our very own award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Acker Beacon Journal. Hi, everyone. All right, Steve, on the Ohio Attorney General's website for unsolved homicides, Harriet Kaltenbach is case number 1386. Have you ever been on that website? No. It, just hearing you talk about it, though, I was like, yeah, I need to check that out. Yeah, it's there are a lot of unsolved homicides that are not on there, so I don't know what the criteria is. Um, but obviously, there are a lot. She is one. But to law enforcement in Chillicothe, the seat of Ross County, she's number one. The most stubborn mystery the police there have ever faced. A case so baffling that even just a couple weeks into it, the local prosecutor was hinting that it was the kind of murder that might go unsolved forever. Whether you want to label this case 1386 or number one, Harriet Kaltenbach is so much more than a number. Those who knew her called her Sissy, so we will too. The nickname was given to her by her father because the name Harriet, she'd been named for a favorite aunt of his, proved to be too hard for her siblings to pronounce when she was born back in 1958. Her parents, Charles and June Buskirk, had seven children in all, two girls and five boys. 
Years later, after the Buskirks separated, their family would be about evenly divided between the communities of Mount Sterling and Chillicothe. Now, Sissy grew into a petite young woman, 23 years old, just five foot three inches and 100 pounds, with shoulder-length brown hair and chocolate eyes. She loved photography, but friends say if she really had any hobby, it was collecting friends. Relationships were important to her, and she nurtured them with a passion. Her mom, June Hammond, said she wouldn't think twice about spending $15 on a greeting card just to show how much she cared. People described her as energetic, even bouncy. So when Sissy was found shot dead, sitting in a rental car with the gun that killed her lying on her lap, Everyone's first reaction was, how could this happen? Suicide and premeditated murder seemed equally unlikely. But as often as the case, an investigation would reveal things that weren't immediately obvious. It was December 30, 1981, a Wednesday, just after 9 in the morning, when police cars pulled into the parking lot at the Heritage Hills apartment complex on Plyley's Lane in Chillicothe. Sissy was inside, slumped against the driver's side window of a 1981 Chevy Citation whose motor and heater were still running. The car was parked in front of the manager's office. Sissy had been shot three times in the chest. The coroner will rule one of the shots, shattered her aorta, killing her instantly. It was the first and only homicide in Chillicothe in 1981. Apartment dwellers told police they thought they heard gunshots around 1.15 a.m. that morning. They didn't tell the exact same story. Some said there were several shots in succession and then silence. Others said they thought they heard a couple of shots and then a long pause and then a couple more shots. But more than one witness saw a man standing at the very car where Sissy's body would be found a few hours later. They described him, and within 24 hours, Chillicothe had issued a composite portrait of someone they said they desperately needed to talk to. He was white, with a close-cropped beard and mustache, and a full head of dark hair. Those who saw him thought he might have been about 28 years old six foot one and 200 pounds. One piece of evidence police had right away was the gun itself. There it was, a 22 caliber handgun right in Sissy's hand. Police briefly toyed with the idea that Sissy might have killed herself, but it didn't take long to realize that wasn't possible, not with three gunshots to her chest. Detectives didn't even think she had been shot in the car. No, more likely, the killer had lifted her up from wherever she had been slain, then posed her in the car with a gun. It was such an amateur effort to pass her off as a suicide, authorities called it moronic. This led to the belief that whoever killed her had not planned the assault at that place and that time because of how poorly it was staged. Now, for several days, the police, they were telling the public they knew who that weapon was registered to, but they were 
tight-lipped, saying it wasn't time to reveal it. And when they finally did reveal it, Chillicothe gasped. The gun was Sissy's. She'd bought it just four days before she was killed because she feared for her life. A Chillicothe reporter found the gun dealer who had sold Sissy the gun, and he shared his story in great detail. His name was George Sparks, and he owned the Patriot Gun and Coin Shop on Main Street. He recalled everything that happened with that sale, not just because it was still fresh in his mind, but because he'd written it down verbatim in his journal. Sparks had made it a habit to write down his most interesting encounters, and Harriet Kaltenbach was an interesting encounter. It happened the afternoon of Saturday, December 26, when Sparks answered a call from a woman who asked if he sold handguns. He said, yeah, she could buy one as long as she met the qualifications. That included being over 21, a non-drug user, and not a resident of a mental institution. Shortly after that call, a young woman wearing jeans and a jean jacket entered his shop. She filled out a form in the name of Harriet Kaltenbach. She told the dealer she didn't know anything about guns and asked about a 38 caliber revolver. Sparks told her the 38 had a lot of recoil, then had to explain what that meant. What are you using it for? He asked her. Self-defense, she told him. Harriet went on to tell him that someone had threatened to kill her before January 1. A man who had already demolished three different cars she was in, forcing her off the road each time with his own car. Sparks thought maybe the young lady was exaggerating, but he took out a Model 129 Harrington and Richardson, a nine-shot 22 caliber revolver with a 21-and-a-half-inch barrel and a blue finish, and handed it to her. She asked him to load it. Instead, he taught her how to load it, walking her through the process several times. It was a double action, meaning the safety would be released simply by pulling the trigger. All you have to do is pull the trigger, he told her. Harriet paid him with a check for $113.94. He threw in a starter box of ammunition as a goodwill gesture. Right before she left, she turned to him one final time and asked if there was anything else she should know. He told her to come back later, and he would sell her a cleaning kit. She agreed to come back. By the way, the check she wrote for the gun was later returned for insufficient funds. Less than two hours after police found Sissy's body in that parked car, They found George Sparks and heard the story of that unusual sale. Sparks' first thought was that the young lady who had been in his store must have taken her own life. But he soon learned it was murder. Detectives were also busy trying to put together the last day, even the last week, of Sissy's life. And there were parts of the timeline that still baffle them to this day. Even though she had family in Chillicothe, including her mom and some of her siblings, Sissy had just moved to town herself that July. 
A graduate of Eastmore High School in Columbus, she had been taking court stenography courses at Columbus Technical Institute before making the move. But her life was not working out the way she had hoped. She'd married her husband, Jack Haltenbach, in 1977. That was four years earlier, when she was just 19. He was deaf and mute, and Sissy taught him sign language. But it didn't work out. They split after two years. And while not technically divorced yet, they most definitely were estranged. And so in this new chapter of her life, Sissy and her 18-year-old sister April worked as waitresses at Pizza Hut on North Bridge Street and lived together at the Zane Square Apartments on Whaley Place. The last time Sissy worked at the Pizza Hut was Christmas Eve, a Thursday. She was supposed to work that Saturday, but she never showed up. She'd gone to buy that gun instead. The day after buying the gun, Sissy traveled in her own white Mustang to Mount Sterling, where her father and other siblings lived, and spent the night in a cabin at Deer Creek State Park. Then Monday, she traveled to Mansfield and checked into the Ellen K. Restaurant Motel. At 7 a.m. Tuesday morning, while at the LNK, she made a long-distance call to a man named Marshall Walker, who lived in the Heritage Hills apartment back in Chillicothe. Marshall Walker was the brother of Martin Walker, who was in the military, stationed in West Germany, and with whom Sissy had recently become romantically involved with. After that phone call, Sissy found that her car in the LNK parking lot wasn't working. So she called a friend she knew in Mansfield, a guy named Thomas Brower, who she used to work with in Columbus. And he agreed to pick Sissy up from the motel and took her to the Hertz Rent-A-Car at the Mansfield Airport. Sissy rented the Chevy Citation. It was 10 a.m. Tuesday morning. Browser was the last to see Sissy in Mansfield. He watched as she pulled away from Hertz, driving west on Richland County Road 30. Sissy didn't even bother returning to the motel. She not only left behind her Mustang, she didn't even bother to check out, abandoning her clothing and other personal items that were found by the housekeeper. Sissy drove her rental car from Mansfield to Columbus, stopped at a Hallmark shop to purchase several greeting cards, then drove to Chillicothe, arriving around 2 p.m. Now, once there, she called Marshall Walker again, this time using a phone at a convenient food mart. Then she went to Walker's apartment at Heritage Hills and from there called his brother in West Germany in a phone call that lasted 50 minutes. After that phone call, Sissy and Marshall Walker drove around town for an hour and a half, even stopping at the ice cream palace for a treat around 3 p.m. Then they went back to Marshall's place, and at 5 p.m., the pair drove to Columbus, so this was Sissy's second time in Columbus that day. A 
Authorities said their intent was to visit a rehabilitation agency. I could not find any clarification of what that meant, who was there, whether the rehabilitation had anything to do with drug use, or was it more the physical therapy variety? But they apparently didn't go there anyway, because on the way to Columbus, the decision was made to visit Sissy's estranged husband, Jack, where he lived in Hilliard. They arrived at Jack's place at 7 p.m., where Sissy spoke to him in sign language for about half an hour. Sissy and Marshall Walker made it back to his Chillicothe apartment by 8.50 p.m., at which time they parted. Walker told police the last time he saw Sissy, she was driving down Plyley's Lane toward Western Avenue. At 10.21 p.m., Sissy made another call, this time to her father-in-law, Ted Kaltenbach, in Columbus. She was using a phone at a Clark gas station. Then at 11.15 p.m., she returned briefly to the apartment she shared with her sister, April, but only stayed 15 minutes. April was the last person, other than Sissy's killer, to see her alive, because two hours after that, Sissy was dead. Police, of course, questioned Marshall Walker at length and told the media he was not a suspect and had passed a polygraph. And they interviewed Jack Kaltenbach with the help of an interpreter and told the press it appeared Jack had been in Columbus at the time of the shooting. Police said they interviewed many relatives and acquaintances of Sissy, and in some cases there was limited cooperation. Prosecuting attorney Richard Ward said, there have been some people who have refused to talk to us without their attorneys present. Ward even went to a grand jury to get them to issue subpoenas for a couple of people who had refused to give their fingerprints or submit to a lie detector test. Police had lifted some prints from the rental car, and they wanted to compare them. Police got their prints and polygraphs, but apparently they led to dead ends. Sergeant Bruce Smith told the Chillicothe newspaper, what's missing is putting the puzzle together finding a person who was the right suspect and poking holes in his story. By January 18, that's less than three weeks after Sissy had been killed, Prosecutor Ward admitted it would seem she is a good victim for an unsolved murder. Sissy's 24th birthday passed without justice, At that time, police said they had interviewed 170 people and had so much information, it was confusing the case. And yet, there was still information they didn't have. They never learned why Sissy went to Mansfield to rent a motel. And they still don't know why, after leaving Marshall Walker at the Heritage Hills apartment parking lot, she returned to that same lot a couple of hours later in time to be killed. Years later, her sister April would tell a reporter she was convinced her sister's erratic movements in the days after Christmas was an attempt to hide. And for the first time, April revealed that the man telling Sissy she would not live to see the new year was a former boyfriend, though the boyfriend was never named. Authorities had his name. They knew who he was. But if he had indeed made good on his threat, then he's gotten away with murder. 
Next year will mark 40 years since Sissy's life was taken, and there has never been an arrest in this case. Wow. That last day was crazy how many you know places she was at. Oh, the telephone calls. The vi- I can see why the police were just going crazy trying to put that timeline together and then understand it. I, I would love to have known what she talked to her uh, estranged husband about. I would love to know why she called her estranged husband's father late that night. Um, I would love to know why she was hanging out with Marshall Walker and driving around town and eating ice cream and uh, just, you know, if the police have answers to those questions, they haven't been shared publicly and, you know, we're the ones left to wonder. Right. And of course, they're going to keep some of that stuff back just in case. Absolutely. And rightly so. All right. Well, that sounds like a good time to bring on our Ohio Mysteries listener to be an armchair detective tonight. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress. Instead of perfection, you don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. History is the greatest adventure story. But does it ever leave you wondering what the women were doing all that time? This is Lori from the Her Half of History podcast, and the answer is that some women were seizing power, or escaping slavery, or spying for their country, or creating artistic masterpieces, while countless others were doing the laundry, getting married, and wondering why their clothes don't have more pockets. If you would like to hear the stories of women doing all of those things, check out Her Half of History at herhalfofhistory.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, tonight's armchair detective is Angie Verity from Athens, Ohio. Hi, Angie. Hey, Paula. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, would you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, I was born and raised in southeastern Ohio, so I've lived in this area pretty much my entire life. And I was saying that I really enjoy your guys' program. I was really excited to be able to be an armchair detective this weekend on this case because this is actually close to where I was born and raised. Now, Chillicothe, that's like, uh, I know it's a little bit of ways from Athens, but that's kind of your big town, right? It is. It is. When I was growing up in neighboring Jackson County, we used to have, that was the only place to go shopping. So if we wanted to go to a JCPenney's or any place that was a department store kind of shopping, that was the place we went to uh, from Jackson County when I was growing up. So I was pretty familiar with Jackson. Now, when you were reading this story, were you kind of recognizing some of the places, the streets, uh, that that sort of thing? 
Yeah, so most of the story took place in in more of the downtown westerly side of Chillicothe. But the one apartment complex that she actually lived in is still in existence. I believe the other one is too, but it was actually on the side of town that we actually drove by a lot whenever we were going to that, going to, to Chillicothe. Okay. Now, this case, it's just uh, my head just keeps getting whipped back and forth. Everything that was happening, even just that day, the day that she died, it's so hard to try to pin it all together. Absolutely. There were so many unanswered questions for me from this mystery. You know, a lot of things just didn't add up or there was a lot of gaps that were left into the story. And so it really kind of made you think, what was going on? You know, what what was she doing during these missing pieces of time? Now, you did a little research on your own and you actually picked up a couple little details that had escaped me. You want to share those? Sure, absolutely. So I had actually started researching a little bit more about the gentleman that she had been spending time with. So it would have been her boyfriend's brother, Marshall. And so in doing some Google searching, I was able to figure out Marshall had passed away in 2014. And in the obituary, it listed that his brother, Martin, was his twin brother, Martin. So that kind of added another twist to the story for me, because especially when hearing that they spent a lot of time together that day, even after she had spoken with his brother on the phone, And then ultimately where she was killed, or at least where she was found, um, ended up being close to where his apartment was. So it kind of made me question, was there more to that story that maybe we don't, we don't know? Yeah, there's an element. I, I have trouble figuring how it fits into the, the murder. But when I heard that he was his twin, I was thinking, well, Martin's in West Germany. Yeah. Is he an identical twin? Yeah. Is he, yeah. you know, it's, I've got somebody yeah. actually here. Exactly. Um, so it made me yeah. wonder, although I have a trouble figuring out how Martin or or Marcus, you know, fit into this. Um, yeah. But I don't know. What do you think? Now, April did. Her sister April mentioned many years later that the man who had been threatening her was a former boyfriend. And I couldn't quite figure out whether that name had been revealed in a previous story. I don't... I got to think that like everybody in town or everybody connected to this case knew who that person was. And it just stumps me that they couldn't get him. Yeah. And it seemed interesting to me that they said they interviewed under 170 people for this case and it actually provided a lot more questions or, you know, it really didn't lead them to a lot of answers. And then, you know, also looking at that period of time, we didn't have technology like we have today. So it's really kind of questionable, like how this all kind of fit together. Like, how did she end up back there? Were there other people that lived in that apartment complex that she knew that she was friends with? You know, there really wasn't a lot of information about that. And then the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting was, you know, they did say that they felt she was placed at that scene in her car with her car running with the murder weapon in her lap. But it didn't really say if they ever found the actual crime scene and where that was. That really kind of asked me, you know, led me to believe, like, did they ever find the true crime scene? So I was uh, at first kind of wondering if she had been killed elsewhere. But the idea of somebody killing her, putting her in the car to move the car to that parking lot, who knows, maybe to put suspicion on Marshall. Yeah. And then 
moving her to the driver's side of the car where she would have found, I keep thinking there would have been other evidence. There would have been blood on another seat or some indication that she had been placed in that car and taken there. So that combined with the idea of the apartment dwellers saying that they heard shots makes me think that she was probably killed there. But, you know, if they if he shot her and she fell on the, the concrete and picked yeah, her up. Yeah, you would have thought there would have been blood. And maybe there was. But, of course, that doesn't mean the police didn't find the blood in the parking lot. Maybe they just never reported it publicly. But... You know, I, I'm not sure why they would have withheld that little detail. Yeah. It's possible. It would have been interesting to know, too, where the manager's uh, office parking area was in location to Marshall's apartment. Right. Now, I got to ask you, because she did a lot of driving that day. She drove from Mount Sterling to Mansfield, Mansfield to Columbus, Columbus to Chillicothe, Chillicothe to Columbus, Columbus to Chillicothe. I guess I don't know that area well enough to hear all those places without getting exhausted. But is that a lot easier than it sounds? I mean, are these... Back then, it wouldn't have been. I mean, now we do have mainly all four-lane highways. But back in the early 80s, a lot of that those routes would not have been... Um, I mean, it's still significant distance between Mansfield and Chillicothe. You know, that's, that's definitely a significant distance. But I'm thinking that even back then you know, state route, or I guess U.S. Route 35 would have been probably not as, you know, robust in terms of the actual four lane that it is today. So it does make me question, like, that's a lot of driving for one day. And it, you know, did make me question, was there drugs involved in some way? But I saw in one report that it said that the detective had said that he wasn't even going to go to drugs. So I don't know if that means they, they didn't want to, they didn't suspect that or, or what they felt like the, the issue was there. But I also thought if they did have drugs, I mean, I would have thought they would have found something in her car that would have alluded to there being some sort of drug issue. Yeah, I, I didn't see references to drugs. I, the only thing that I saw was I did see a detective say that Sissy was neither saint nor sinner. And I thought that was an interesting turn of phrase, which made me think maybe there were a couple of things that they weren't free to talk about that might have caused us to think differently about this case. But, man, between the phone calls and the traveling, it just seemed like a wild day, like she was either running from something or she knew something was going on and she had to make all of these trips to handle whatever was going on. Yeah, she definitely seemed like a desperate person. You know, she had bought a gun just four days before. She was swapping vehicles, whether that was planned or not. It definitely sounded like from hearing what the gun store owner had said, you know, she was saying that he had ran her off the road and had damaged multiple vehicles. And so, you know, and she'd left town. So it definitely had the elements of somebody was was after her. But I, I kind of hate to think that she wouldn't have told somebody in her family, but maybe they weren't a close family. I mean, I know she was living with her sister at the time, but she was only 18 and she may have had that protective older sister role with her younger sister that she didn't want to drag her and get her involved in things. Yeah, her sister was only 18. I know it was years later that April said publicly that she thought maybe her sister was trying to hide from whoever was trying to kill her. And that was why she was sleeping in these odd places. 
But it was years and years later that April said that. And I wasn't clear as to whether April thought that at the time or only came to realize that later after hearing about everything that had been going on in her sister's crazy day. Absolutely. I think there are just so many little questions I so desperately want answered. You know, why did she go see her husband? Why did she make a late night phone call to her husband's father? Why did she stop and pick up greeting cards? You know, yeah. what what is going on in her day that is consistent with, oh, I better stop and pick up some greeting cards. Yeah. It was like, did she think she was going to get killed or not? Yeah. I, that's a good point. I never really considered that aspect of it, but she definitely had, you know, a sense of wanting to send cards to folks. So whether that was like something so that they would remember her in case she would be killed, you know, because it was interesting that that person had, or the person that she had referenced at the gun store had said that she had said something about being dead by the first part of the year. And there was definitely some unfinished business there that, it just begs you to question what had she gotten herself into? Cause she was a young lady herself. She was only 23. Right. And myself at 23, I definitely did not have the world figured out and know what, what was going on and who I would have gotten myself mixed up with if I was happened down the wrong path. So it does make you question somewhat foreboding of her own demise at that point that she may have been trying to come up with some way to help support and come for her family. I was trying to put myself in that framework of having this prophecy put over my head, you know, that you're going to die in the next six days. And what would that be like? I mean, especially if the threat came from somebody who had already run her off the road, you know, you have to take it seriously. You can't joke about it. What steps would you take in your own life to try to protect yourself. And yeah. it's really horrifying. It's really horrifying. It is. And it kind of lends you to believe that maybe whoever this was, was stalking her and that they did recognize that, you know, she was spending time with this Marshall fellow and not knowing all of the details of that, you know, they probably did want to potentially stage it to look like he had some involvement in her death. Yeah. Boy, this is a this is a brain teaser. I I don't you know I think I don't think this one's going to get solved unless somebody comes forward. It doesn't sound like they've got evidence that they need. Obviously, those fingerprints weren't connecting with any former boyfriends that they had been trying to talk to. So unless somebody comes forward, I don't know how this one's going to get solved. And it's interesting because they were talking about it being the fingerprints being on the rental car. And I got to thinking about rental cars. Really, it was could have been anybody that rented that cars. Oh, my gosh. You know? Because yeah, you... they weren't thinking back then. Like, we, you know, we've all seen CSI now. People wipe down cars, things of that nature. You hear about those things because they, they know you can track people. But back then, I mean, you know, it could have just been any random person that had rented that car previously, fingerprints. But they may yeah. have had some of the murder weapon as well. You don't really know that piece either. Well, right, right. They've got some fingerprints, but apparently their best suspects were not matching them. Yeah, God love them. This, the police department there really has their hands full with it. And I know they're desperate to solve this one. It's all the work they've put into this one. I know that they want to solve this one bad. Absolutely. Well, Angie, thank you so much for joining us. I hope we get to do this again. You were wonderful. Yes. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you guys so much. And I absolutely love Ohio Mysteries and uh, hope that you guys have all kinds of mysteries that end up actually being solved by the work that you guys are doing. So thanks a lot for um, everything you guys, the energy and time that you're putting into this project, because I know that there have been cases that have had outcomes. And I happen to think that it's probably the attention that programs like your guys is, is having to bring attention to them again. Thank you, Angie. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more, head on over to our website at ohiomysteries.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Find us by searching for Ohio Mysteries in the search tab. See you Tuesday at 9 p.m. for our live 10-minute mystery on Facebook. Or, if you can't catch us live, we still put up that mystery on our podcast. See you soon. It is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.